Well, hello once again. I'd invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, wherever you're at. Open up your Bibles or flip in your phone to the Bible app, and we'll be finishing up John chapter 4 today. Now, we've seen that John's Gospel has one major theme that runs throughout from beginning to end, and that theme is belief. John himself tells us that his purpose for writing is that we would read these things and believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing, we'd have eternal life. His number one goal is for us to believe, and some form of the word to believe or have belief is found over a hundred times in the Gospel of John. Even in these first four chapters of the book, we've already seen this theme coming out. In one twelve, John said to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Then, of course, in 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And in 3.36, John says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. And then what do the Samaritans do with Jesus? It says they believed in him. So why is belief such a central theme? Why does John spend so much time on this idea? Well, he does it because the stakes are high. The stakes are actually eternally high. We find John not only telling us the glorious result of belief in Jesus, but also warning us of the terrible consequence of unbelief. He says the one who doesn't believe is condemned already and the wrath of God remains on him because he's still in his sin. From Jesus' words to Nicodemus, we know that no one can control the Spirit of God and that this new birth is completely a gift from God. There's nothing we could do to earn our salvation and there's nothing we can do to add to it. John clearly affirms the sovereignty of God in it, but at the same time, he still clearly affirms that we're completely responsible for our belief or unbelief. So let's not take for granted that when we talk about believing in Jesus, we're getting into the weightiest topic possible. We're, we're talking about the most important conversation we can have because the eternity of men and women are at stake. My eternity and your eternity are at stake. And it all revolves around belief in Jesus. And as we finish chapter 4 today, we come to a passage that forces us to consider the authenticity of of our faith and belief in Jesus. So go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 4 and verse 43. John 4, 43. And here's what it says. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So Jesus was asked by the Samaritans to stay with them, and so he did stay two days. But now he's departing for Galilee. And remember where we're at in the ministry of Jesus. We're about to complete a little bit of a round-trip journey. When Jesus first calls his disciples, he decides to travel to Galilee, and there he performs the first miracle of turning water into wine at the wedding. That was really the kickoff of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of John. Then from there, he and his disciples travel from Galilee down to Jerusalem for the Passover, and they do some ministry there and in Judea before passing through Samaria, and now they're once again returning to Galilee, and that's where we find them now. 
And now in verse 44, we find this parenthetical statement by John that's difficult to understand at first. John recalls Jesus at some point testifying or affirming that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. This was likely a proverbial saying of the time, but what makes this confusing is what is meant by Jesus's hometown. When he talks about his hometown, what is he talking about? He was certainly from Nazareth, but Nazareth isn't mentioned anywhere in this passage. But Nazareth was a city in Galilee, and that's the region where he was heading. And in the Gospels, Jesus and his disciples were often um, talked about as being Galileans. That's what they are known as. And so it's most likely that when it's talking about his hometown, Jesus is referring to Galilee. But that's why it's puzzling that he says a prophet has no honor in his hometown, meaning Galilee. But then in the very next verse, it says, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. So what's going on there? If he doesn't have any honor there, then why would they welcome him? That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. But the answer is in verse 45. The Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now it's making a little bit more sense. Like good Jews, they too had gone down to Jerusalem around the time of the Passover and had likely witnessed some of Jesus' miracles there. We saw recorded a few chapters ago that, that John says that Jesus did many signs in Jerusalem. And so, of course, the miracle-working hometown boy is back and they welcome him with open arms. They're happy to welcome and receive Jesus, but it wasn't because he was the Messiah, the Son of God. It was because he was a miracle worker. These people were sign seekers. In just a few verses, Jesus will confirm this indictment against them when he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Their welcome of Jesus and even their belief in him was directly tied to what he could do for them. It was based on his ability to perform miracles. So when John writes that the Galileans welcomed him, he's really intending some deep sarcasm. And it, it shouldn't be a surprise, though, that this is their response. Because remember, at the end of chapter 2, Jesus, he was doing miracles in Jerusalem, and it said many believed. But then in 2.24, it says, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him, for he himself knew what was in man. Even there we have hints that the faith of these people is flimsy at best. They're looking at Jesus more as a miracle worker than the Son of God. And we find in the Gospels that this kind of faith or belief has little chance of surviving long term. We'll see in just a few weeks when we get to John chapter 6 that Many of Jesus' followers abandon him once he starts teaching things that they don't really like, even after he had just miraculously fed a crowd of 5,000 plus people. And consider the fact that at the height of his popularity, Jesus had crowds of maybe close to 10,000 people coming to hear what he had to say and see what he would do. But by the time of his resurrection and ascension, and he tells the disciples to wait for the giving of the Holy Spirit, how many faithful followers do we find waiting in the upper room in Jerusalem? Only 120. Only 120. What does that say about the supposed belief of the multiple thousands that followed him throughout Galilee and crisscrossed the lake to keep up with him and see what he was doing? What can this teach us about the nature of belief? What does authentic faith look like? 
And by the way, I'll, I'll be using the words faith and belief interchangeably. In the Christian context, they're pretty much synonyms. So what does authentic faith or belief consist of? That's what we need to know. And there's really three things true belief has. Three things true belief has. And the first is content. True belief has content. We don't believe in fairy tales. We don't believe in just hopes and dreams and good feelings. We don't believe in in just a higher morality or an enlightened way of living. There is a content to our belief, and it is the person of Jesus sent from heaven by God the Father, just as he had promised thousands of years before to send a Messiah to save his people from their sins. There is a theological and historical foundation to our faith. But it's scary how so much of what's called Christianity in our country looks a lot more like New Age mysticism or pop psychology or self-help programs than anything we find in the Bible. But biblical belief is founded upon the truth of who Jesus is before it's ever about what Jesus can do for you. There's a a deep, rich content to our belief. These Galileans, they were happy to welcome Jesus because He's probably going to do some awesome stuff. He's going to do some cool miracles for them. But they weren't welcoming him because he was the son of God. There was excitement, but there was no honor. They wanted what Jesus could do for them. But true belief is based on who Jesus is. There's content to it. That's why John writes that his purpose is that we would believe what? That Jesus is the son of God. He doesn't say, uh, believe that Jesus can save you or that Jesus can make your life better or make you a better person. Um, of course, those are things that, that can certainly come. But first, that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It has to start there. Paul gives us another good example of this in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, he's reminding the Corinthians of the gospel that he preached to them. And instead of telling them, Jesus made me a better person or gave me fulfillment and purpose or made me happy, here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins and in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and they appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve, and he goes on and on. You know, Paul could have appealed to so many different things to convince people to believe, but he knew the only power in belief is the content of the gospel and the truth of the scriptures. We don't have a blind faith. Our faith is rooted in biblical truth, and we believe in Jesus because we know that he is the Son of God and he is the only way to life. So even when life gets tough and things don't go our way, our faith doesn't waver because it's not founded on shifting sands, but instead on the rock that never changes. So true belief has content. And the, thing it, and the second thing it has is commitment, and specifically a relational commitment. These people had no real commitment to Jesus. They had a fascination with him, but they were basically bandwagon fans of Jesus Christ. And there's a major difference between being a fan and a follower. Most people are fans of someone. Maybe you're a fan of a certain actor or actress, a musician or singer, a politician, or certainly most of you are fans of athletes or coaches or teams. I bet some of you right now are listening to this still in your Crimson Tide pajamas since we aren't in church right now. But anyway, let's use that example. You're a fan of an athlete. 
you may know all about their stats on the field, every single thing that they can do. And you may know their height and their weight. You know who they're related to. You even know where they went to high school. It's kind of creepy when you think about it. You may know everything there is to know about that person, but you don't actually know them. There's a difference between knowing of someone and actually knowing someone. And the difference is the relationship. And we'll find as we continue in the gospel of John that Jesus has thousands of followers. They knew he was from Nazareth. They knew who his mother was and his siblings were. They knew who his disciples were. They knew he could do miracles, but the majority would abandon him along the way because there was no commitment, no relationship. They ended up actually being fans and not really followers. True belief has content, but it can't stop there. Knowledge alone doesn't, does nothing if it isn't combined with a relational commitment. Just think about the Pharisees and the high priests that put Jesus on the cross. They knew who he was. They knew he could heal the blind and heal the paralytic and the deaf. They knew he could cleanse the leper. They knew he could command the winds and the waves. They knew he could even raise people from the dead. There was no denying that this man was from God, but they still murdered him. They were blind, not for a lack of knowledge, but because they refused to submit and commit to knowing Jesus. True belief involves a personal trust in Jesus for who he is, the Son of God. So belief has content and commitment. And there's a third characteristic we'll see, but first we have to continue in our passage just a little bit. So let's pick back up there in verse 46 and see what happens when Jesus arrives in Galilee. John 4, 46 says this, So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus ends up in Cana, and John notes it's the same place where he first turned water into wine. And it tells us it was an official or a king's attendant in Capernaum, whose son was ill. Now, Cana and Capernaum were about 17 miles apart, so that helps us see how big of a deal Jesus was. 17 miles doesn't sound like that much now, but remember this is when people mainly walked, or if they were wealthy, had a horse. So word traveled fast when Jesus showed up, and there is an official. Now, the word official really can be translated nobleman or king's attendant, and the only person in the area, who would have been thought of as something close to a king was Herod Antipas. He wasn't technically a king, but he was established by the Roman Empire as the ruler of Galilee. And Herod was a wicked man. He had divorced his wife so he could marry his brother's wife, and he eventually has John the Baptist beheaded. But Herod was known for making his men rich, so you could assume that this official would have had access to the best physicians in the region. Uh, he, he wouldn't have lacked for anything, so he must be in serious need if he's coming all the way to Jesus asking him to heal his son. And he's desperate because he's made this 17-mile journey just to make this request. And here's how Jesus responds in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, "'Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe.' The official said to him, "'Sir, come down before my child dies.' Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. 
The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now, what a a strange response at first by Jesus. It almost seems rude. You have this guy traveling a long way to beg for a miracle, and then Jesus rebukes him. But one interesting aspect that doesn't really come across in our English is that when Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe, uh, the word you in the Greek there is actually plural. So when Jesus says this to him, he's actually making a broader statement about the Galilean Jews in general. This confirms what we saw earlier, that the Galileans welcomed him because they knew he could do miracles. Their belief wasn't in Jesus. It was in what he could do for them. So Jesus speaks this rebuke, but look how the man responds. He doesn't defend himself or make any protest. He simply says, sir, come before my child dies. You can feel the desperation there. The man has a child who is going to die apart from any supernatural intervention. He doesn't care to defend himself. All he cares about is his child. And Jesus tells him, go, your son will live. And here's a key phrase, and I think it's important how John wrote it. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. We don't see the man continuing to beg Jesus, saying, no, Jesus, you have to come with me. We got to make sure he lives. You have to come with me. Instead, he believed the word that Jesus spoke. So we see this man believing actually before seeing, and that's a good sign. He took Jesus at his word and left. And here's how the story ends, beginning in verse 51. It says, as he was going down... His servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Apparently the man stayed the night somewhere and continued his journey back home the next day and While he's on his way, his servants meet him with the news that his son is recovering. And we see him connecting the dots and ask them, when was it yesterday that he started getting better? And he finds out it's the seventh hour, which is around 1 p.m. And the man remembers that that was the same exact time the day before when Jesus had told him, your son will live. So we need to pause in the story and remember that John's purpose for writing is to show us that Jesus is the son of God. So everything that's recorded is meant to teach us something about Jesus. When we read any part of this gospel, we have to ask ourselves, what does this reveal about him? And here we have the first healing that's recorded in detail by John. And this is one of the more impressive ones because this one not only shows that Jesus is the Lord of healing, but also that he is the Lord of time and space as well. And by that, I mean that Jesus was not hindered or restricted by the fact that he couldn't see this sick child or that he couldn't lay hands on him. The people probably thought that being a miracle worker, the power was in his touch and Jesus would have to to go there and, and touch him. But Jesus goes far beyond that limitation just by saying the words, your son will live. The boy who's 17 miles away is instantly better. And it doesn't really matter that it was 17 miles If it had been 17 million miles, it would have made no difference. Who can do something like that? Who can heal someone miles away in an instant with just a thought? The conclusion is only God. 
Jesus is the Son of God. And we'll see this fleshed out even more in the next chapter with another healing. So we see that Jesus is the Lord over sickness and healing. And now let's look at how this official responds. It says he himself believed in all his household. So verse 53 says the man believed, but didn't already tell us that he believed in verse 50? Was that not a real belief earlier if he's believing now? No, I, th- I think it was belief, but maybe not the strongest belief, but it was initial belief. And now, now after he's learned that Jesus could heal his son from miles away just by speaking healing, he steps into a deeper faith. And here we find the third characteristic of belief. A true belief has content, it has commitment, and it has cultivation. It's sometimes assumed that faith and belief begin and end at salvation. Like, there's your belief at its best, case closed, as if belief is something that's static and never changes. But that's not the nature of Christian faith. What we see in the Bible is quite different. There's meant to be a cultivation and growth of our faith. Peter talks about this quite a bit in his letters. In 1 Peter 2-2, he says, Like newborn infants long for the pure and spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter is saying if we have tasted the goodness of life in Jesus, we should crave more. We shouldn't be satisfied with where we are currently. We want to grow up into salvation, into all that God has for us. And the last thing he tells his readers in 2 Peter 3.18 is to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Paul echoes this as well, telling the Colossians that he always prays that they'll increase in the knowledge of God. And remember, we don't have a blind faith. Our belief has content, and so faith and knowledge are tied together. It is expected of all Christians that we would grow in our faith and belief. We should constantly be moving from belief into deeper belief, into deeper belief. And that has no age limit. There's nothing more encouraging to me and more convicting to me than when I hear from a senior saint what God is teaching them. To have someone who has walked with God for decades or even the better part of a century telling me that God is still revealing more of himself to them and they're still growing spiritually. Now that is a testament to someone who is committed to growing in their faith. And at the same time, there's nothing more discouraging and pitiful than someone who's been saved for years or even decades, but has put no work into deepening their faith or growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. They're like the people, the writer of Hebrews, accused of being spiritual infants. He says, you ought to be able to digest solid food by now, but you're still stuck on milk. You know, it's normal for a baby to eat baby food because they can't digest thicker stuff. But if 20 years later that baby is now a man and is still drinking out of a bottle and eating pureed carrots, then something is wrong. There should have been growth and movement and development. It's the same with our faith and belief in God. The Christian life is a growing life. A disciple is a follower, and the word follower denotes movement. We're to continue deeper and deeper into faith in Jesus until the day we're finally face-to-face with our Lord and Savior, and our faith will be made sight. But cultivation requires action and commitment. It doesn't happen on its own or by osmosis. If we want to be followers of Jesus who have true belief with content, commitment, and cultivation, then we have to work at it. 
And the number one way to to develop that is by diving into God's Word. And, and that's where that's where us and the Holy Spirit meet. We must be people of the Word. This is where we get our content. This is where we find the truth of and the purposes of God. This is where we find the life of Christ and His mission. And this is where we find the paths of God that lead us to flourishing and growth and sanctification. So may we be committed to intaking the Word of God often and consistently. And so the, the challenge for us is... It, if we consider ourselves to be followers of Christ, we need to evaluate our belief in Him. Is our belief honoring to Him? Do we believe in Jesus for who He is or just for what He can do for us? The life Jesus offers is found in knowing Him as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and in that, finding eternal life. And if there's those that are listening that that you know you haven't honored Christ in your belief yet, then make today that day when uh, when you move from just a fan to a true follower. And we know from Scripture that is accomplished by uh, confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in our heart that God raised, from, raised Him from the dead and we will be saved. It's, it's believing in what Jesus did on the cross and, and turning and repenting from our sins and asking for forgiveness and we know that He is faithful and just to forgive us. That's all we have to do to enter in to that eternal life. Just as John says that we would believe that He is the Son of God and in that find eternal life. That is our hope in this life and in the next. Amen.